This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Rockland 2015 is starting to sound a bit like Searsport 2012. A large out-of-state corporation has spun off a local-sounding limited liability corporation, Rockland Energy, that is proposing to build a gas plant in the city. Few specifics have been released, leaving Rockland residents with many unanswered questions. Renew Rockland, a group that describes itself as local residents who have come together to respond to changing energy needs and concerns about our local environment, compiled unanswered questions collected at a few previous meetings where the issue has been discussed, and held a forum last week to try to address them. Panelists at the forum on Rockland's energy future had expertise in engineering gas plants, alternative energy, climate change, and health. The resulting discussion has implications far beyond Rockland. In a two-part special this weekend next, we'll take you there. I moderated the forum. Amy Files is an organizer with Renew Rockland. Thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Amy Files, and I live in Rockland. And I am a founding member of Renew Rockland. Renew Rockland is a new group that evolved out of a desire to create positive change in our community in response to the challenges we face to grow our economy responsibly and sustainably in light of climate change concerns and a global call to create new approaches to how we live in and interact with our environment. Renew Rockland's mission is to promote sustainable economic growth and a healthy community by educating on the importance of protecting our natural resources, uh, encouraging green infrastructure, renewable technology, energy efficiency, and ending our dependence on fossil fuels. We organized this evening's event in response to community requests that a discussion of the power plant proposal accommodate alternative viewpoints and be organized independent of the city. We see the discussion of this power plant proposal as an opportunity for us as a community to explore how we'd like to approach meeting our energy needs educate ourselves on what those needs are, and to develop long-term solutions that will benefit our local economy, improve our community's health, and meet the values that we hold as a community. Before introducing our moderator, I want to quickly thank the First Universalist Church here uh, for providing us with this space, as well as our panelists and our moderator for generously donating their time to be here tonight. Um, also, we do have one last-minute change to the panel. Um, fortunately, Anna Demio had a family emergency and won't be joining us. Um, but fortunately, uh, thanks to his willingness to accept a very last-minute invitation, uh, we've been able to include Mike Mayhew, who will be able to speak to some of the questions that have been raised about renewable alternatives and efficiency. Um, and you'll hear a little bit more in a few minutes about his background. Our moderator, Amy Brown, um, she's the voice many of you may be familiar with if you listen to WERU. Um, that's 89.9 on our radio dial. Amy has been with WERU for more than 15 years, first as a volunteer reporter, and since 2006 as the news and public affairs manager. She was the recipient of the Sierra Club of Maine's 2014 Excellence in Reporting on the Environment Award, and her weekly show, Main Currents, featuring independent local news, views, and culture, airs on Wednesdays at 4 p.m. And now I'll hand over the evening to her, uh, Amy Brown.
Thanks, Amy. And I'd like to thank Renew Rockland and all of the panelists and all of you for coming out tonight as well and uh, for inviting me to participate in this. So tonight we're going to be discussing issues related to the proposal to build a natural gas cogeneration plant here in the city and a quick review of what's known about this proposal. Last spring, representatives of Rockland Energy LLC, a subsidiary of the Boston-based Energy Management Incorporated, or EMI, approached the city of Rockland to explore the possibility of purchasing land, city land, to build a natural gas-fired electricity generation plant. The city land in question is where City Hall and the Public Works buildings currently stand. And while the land in question is zoned industrial, it's also sited very close to residences and schools. Shortly after announcing the news of the proposal, the Rockland City Council voted to move forward with a sales option of the city property to EMI, and that was signed in August. The city and EMI are now in an agreement to work out a final sales agreement, which would need to be acted on within 180 days of that signing of the sales option. The proposed plant could not operate without the construction of a natural gas pipeline, which uh, the nearest connection point for which is in Windsor, Maine, outside of Augusta, about 25 miles from here. Details of the proposed power plant are still vague, but it would likely be a cogeneration gas and steam facility with a generation capacity of around 75 megawatts. Renew Rockland has compiled a pretty exhaustive uh, list of questions that we will not get to all of tonight, but we're going to try to get to as many as we can. We will stop at 7.45 and start taking questions from the public, regardless of how far we get through the list of questions. There's also going to be some overlap here and uh, more than one person probably wanting to jump in and comment and answer the different questions that we have. The categories are roughly broken into local issues and project specifics, natural gas, renewables, and climate change. So I'm going to just briefly say who the panelists are, but then I'm going to ask them to tell you a little bit more about their areas of expertise. So if you want to have a question later on or a comment, you can be thinking of who best to direct it to based on their areas of expertise. Norm Anderson, I'm, I'm going to start from this end of the table. We don't have name tags, but starting closest to me, Norm Anderson is an environmental health scientist and a volunteer member of Maine Physicians for Social Responsibilities Climate Change Committee. Next to him, Dr. Stephen Mulkey is the president of Unity College and climate change scientist. And Unity College, we should mention, is the first institute of higher education to vote to divest from fossil fuel investments. In the middle, we have Jim Tolan, who is a senior principal engineer at Bath Ironworks and an energy consultant. And then we have uh, Larry Pritchett, who many of you who are from Rockland will know as one of your city councilors. He's also the chair of the city of Rockland's energy committee. And on the other end, generously jumping in at the last minute to uh, take place for someone who, as Amy mentioned, had to, uh, had to cancel, is Michael Mayhew, who is an energy engineer and performing performance contracting and renewable energy systems design and installation specialist. So thank you all for being here. And maybe starting on this end of the table, you can say a little bit more just briefly about your areas of expertise as pertains to this topic so people can start formulating who they might want to ask their questions to when it comes to that time. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Uh, yes, as Amy said, my name is Norm Anderson. I'm an environmental health scientist and here uh, tonight representing uh, the main chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Uh, earlier this year, uh, Maine PSR came out with a 
report called uh, Death by Degrees, which was uh, an overview of the climate uh, and health impacts in Maine. Uh, this, this is interesting because 15 years ago, uh, Maine PSR also came out with a Death by Degrees report, so this is an update of that earlier report. Um, essentially, the, the report uh, released just a few months ago uh, pretty much validated the concerns that were emerging then that are, that are pretty much uh, very well defined at this point. Um, so I wanted to sort of put that out there in terms of an of, um, uh, item for discussion. Uh, I also uh, am a consultant with the Southwest Pennsylvania Environmental Health Project which is located right in uh, the heart of the Marcellus Shale fracking uh, activity in uh, southwestern Pennsylvania. And our effort down there has been to uh, focus on, on the assessment of the health impacts related to the various aspects of the unconventional uh, gas extraction activities, both at the drill sites themselves and downstream high impacts and compressor stations and so forth. Thank you. Dr. Mulkey? Hi, everybody. I'm Stephen Mulkey. I'm the president of Unity College. It's been uh, my privilege and, and opportunity to serve uh, in Maine for the last four and a half years. Uh, <clears throat> I'm an environmental scientist. Uh, I uh, have studied uh, environmental issues uh, as a scientist for uh, 30 years. Um, I was science advisor to the Charlie Crist administration in Florida, and I sat on the Alachua County Energy Commission, which I'm just learned tonight, uh, EMI actually built the uh, biomass cogen plant in Gainesville, Florida. And I have uh, a lot of uh, things to say about that plant in terms of its lack of benefit for the community there. Um, I've also uh, done a number of studies on climate change itself. I've worked in Central and South America for about 20 years and was affiliated with the Smithsonian. Uh, the thing I have to offer you is science. Um, I'm not uh, an environmentalist per se. I often come down on the same side as the environmentalists, but uh, I'm driven by science. And science offers no guarantees. It simply offers you a frame, a way to understand a problem. And I hope that I can be useful to you tonight. Thank you. Yeah. Well, good evening. My name is Jim Tolan. Uh, for most of the last 25 years, I've been involved with uh, energy projects. I've done uh, about a half a dozen cogeneration projects designed, uh, constructed uh, for various engineering companies, uh, Hershey's Chocolate, uh, Morton Salt, several orange juice cogens, paper mills, uh, very much like this project. There are no specifics on this project, but, but generally speaking, I'd imagine it would probably look like those projects did. Uh, I've also uh, been fortunate. I've uh, done a lot of work with wind and solar energy. Uh, I, was, uh, I had the dream job of doing a wind energy project in the Galapagos, so I got to travel down there for five years, develop that. Uh, and also I worked on another unique project, a project called the Cape Wind Project. Uh, which was off the Cape, uh, Nantucket Sounds, fairly controversial. I mentioned that because it's relevant uh, that some of the principles in that project also the principles of EMI. Um, I know nothing about this project, the, the developer here. I haven't talked to any EMI in quite a while, but I just wanted to make everyone aware that in my past I have had uh, professional dealings with them. 
As Amy said, I'm Larry Pritchett. I'm chair of the city's energy committee. I want to just briefly talk a little bit about what the energy committee does. Uh, we've been active for six and a half years. One of the first things we did was to quantify energy use uh, throughout city government, not throughout the community. That's difficult to do uh, in a town not served by a utility. Uh, and then start working on the areas of high energy use. And in Rockland, uh, most of the energy across all, all sectors goes to treating wastewater. Uh, the next highest use is lighting use for street lighting. Uh, and the highest use in terms of buildings was um, the library. Um, on, on wastewater, the city is implementing a number of technologies, primarily imported from Europe, uh, to reduce the energy load there. And we're very intrigued by uh, the ideas coming out. Uh, Metropolitan District Commission in Washington is exploring what we call making wastewater uh, energy neutral, meaning you take the waste that's generated, such as solids, and generate biogas from that, which then powers a combined heat power plant or something similar to uh, power the treatment plant. Because water's a pound a pound, takes a lot of energy to treat it, that, that load's not going away. So you're not going make big dents in the city's energy load without somehow they're either reducing the load to wastewater or coming up with a renewable source to, to power that. Uh, so again, big big improvements in efficiency there, still having very high level thoughts about how to capture more of the energy there. Uh, as everyone knows, Rockland is an old town with a lot of historic buildings. Uh, the city operates a 1904 Carnegie Library. Uh, if you read something like uh, Mayor de Blasio's Climate Action Plan in the city of New York, it talks about deep energy retrofits. A big chunk of what the committee has done is gone into trying to understand what deep energy retrofits for a historic building is. I mean, you need to deal with the moisture first, you need to think about where you can insulate where you can't, you need to think about insulation and air sealing. So we went through, uh, we're probably, I would call it somewhere between phase two and phase three in the library of insulation and air sealing and improving the operations of the, of the HVAC system with a long-term target of getting down to about 60%, reducing the load by 60%. And a lot of what we've done is take that information and take it out to owners of other historic buildings downtown. Uh, just hit a couple of other things real quickly and I'll, I'll move on. Uh, the other big pieces I mentioned was that um, from a lot of towns after wastewater, street lighting is your biggest use of electricity. Um, we found out that for most of Maine, you're renting your street lights from a T&D utility. You're on a 15-year contract. You can't really do anything that until that 15-year contract is over. Uh, Rockland, South Portland, and Falmouth uh, crafted legislation based upon Massachusetts, got it passed in 2013. Uh, 20, yes, 2013. Crafted in 2010, got it passed in 2013. And have been working through the PUC with the T&D since to create a program that's so market-driven that will aid the uh, introduction of LED street lighting uh, throughout municipalities in Maine. That alone should reduce the electric load for, for uh, street and area lighting on the scale of 50%. Um, the last one I'll just mention, which is more relevant tonight, is um, the same group of towns representing municipalities is currently working on the solar stakeholder process at the Public Utilities Commission. There's enormous potential to generate solar on capital landfills in Maine. That's land you can't do anything else with. Um, I, I should have brought the chart up and I can refer to it a little bit later, but we just submitted to the commission an estimate of what, how much PV, so much solar power could be generated just using brownfields, i.e. primarily capital landfills across the state. Um, Nathan wanted me to mention, and I'll, I'll just mention it, um, that I am an environmental consultant. I spent most of my life working for environmental groups like the Natural Resources Council of Maine, Conservation Law Foundation, Friends of Castle Bay, 
uh, Friends of Bagadus River, uh, Friends of Presumpscot River, and partially related to that is that some of the people I work with day in and day out have done a lot of oil spill work in the country, uh, both uh, for governments and for um, environmental groups. And I've worked on projects like, you know, what's the thermal impact to the water column from conventional hydroelectric dam? How does it change? What fish can exist in the river? How it affects their spawning habitat? Uh, and I've also worked on uh, cooling water discharge evaluations for traditional power plants. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mike Mayhew. I am an energy engineer. Um, I've spent my professional career, uh, I started off uh, teaching energy efficient building at SM, uh, SMVTI back in 1980 and uh, was running a solar business on the side. Um, that was before uh, people told me you couldn't make a living out of solar. Um, I then, uh, when uh, Unity was able to get a hold of their uh, uh, solar collectors because uh, uh, the Reagan administration took them off the uh, White House, uh, all of the rebates were shut down and, and all of a sudden what I had hoped to be my lifelong career was diminished so I uh, focused on commercial energy efficiency. And uh, I worked uh, for Bangor Hydro, I worked for Central Maine Power. Daniel, are folks hearing a lot of feedback out there? I'm hearing feedback. There's some feedback. feedback. Is okay. And also just a timekeeping thing, we've uh, used up the time that we had allocated for the first set of questions at this point so sorry to rush you but if you can wrap that up and then we'll try to be real succinct as okay we the uh, long story well. short i became the state energy efficiency engineer under the baldacci administration um, all my spare time and, and livelihood is running my own company heliotropic technologies we do commercial and uh, industrial energy efficiency projects as well as uh, municipal energy studies and we install an awful lot of renewable energy systems. Um, I, my company was hired by Efficiency Maine to uh, run the Booth Bay Harbor pilot program where we were able to avoid a $19 million new transmission line uh, for about $4 million worth of energy conservation and lighting and uh, some solar incentives and things like that. So uh, we reduce the ratepayers costs by improving the environment and, and improving all the stores environments that we're using inefficient lighting and had uh, terrible air conditioning, which all of a sudden was plenty fine when they didn't have the heat sources. Okay, thank you very much. So lots of knowledge on the panel in a nutshell, and I appreciate all of your expertise and your being willing to be here tonight to answer questions. And we're going to ask you to try to, we don't want to limit the, um, extent of the answer to your question. We want to make sure that it gets answered thoroughly, but we also want to get through as many of them as possible. So if you can work with us in striking a balance between those two things, we've got quite a list here and we want to get to public questions as well. The first uh, set of questions, um, sort of three smaller questions, go to City Councilor Larry Pritchett. The first of which is, where is the City of Rockland in the process in regards to this project right now? Sure. Um, Amy sort of did the broad outline, but let me just hit a couple of points real quick. Let me stress that the CH project is not a city project. Uh, it's not something that's being developed 
to meet a particular need within city government. The city is not a financial partner to that. I also want to stress that both the council and the energy committee and the manager expect this project to show significant community benefit or there will be no reason uh, for the project to move forward. Uh, Amy mentioned the, the, the sort of brief timeline in terms of uh, um, council approving a, a, an option in May, uh, city holding forum in April, May and in uh, August. Uh, where the project is now is there is an option agreement, non-binding option agreement on the table, meaning that the city or EMI, either one can pull away without penalty. Uh, the point of the option agreement is then to come up with a purchase and sale agreement that captures uh, what would need to be addressed for the city to actually transfer ownership uh, of the property. Uh, and, and that's really the key point here, because this is municipal property, and I think council understands that the community expects the community values and the community questions to be addressed before that property is sold to a third party. And uh, so the, the, the key point isn't so much, you know, a DEP permit, or, or which is important, I don't mean to downplay that, but the key point is to identify during this option period what are the issues like it's been asked, you know, uh, noise, local air emissions, local benefit to the energy, uh, grid alternatives, whatever those key questions are, and be sure those get captured in the purchase and sale agreement and that we figure out which of those the community really needs to know before the community can vote on it. Uh, so the short answer is uh, we're in the option agreement process. Uh, we're really waiting to hear from EMI and get some strong indication they want to move forward. If they do, the city will assemble a professional team to assist the manager uh, and to help with negotiations to advise council on, on the key issues. Uh, and then there's supposed to be a draft uh, purchase and sale agreement completed by, I think it's January 28th, it's the end of January. Uh, and if that doesn't happen, the project's over. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me, you've anticipated one of the uh, next questions, but the final one for you before we move on is, when was the last time the company was in contact with the city? Have they been staying in contact? I think if you say in, in contact, you know, there, there's been questions to city staff. There hasn't been anything that looks like negotiations. And they, that's been fairly recent that they've been in touch? That would be a question for the manager. I haven't, those comments haven't been with me. Okay. Uh, moving on, uh, this question is for engineer Jim Tolan. Uh, we understand that without the design specifications of this particular project, you can only comment in generalities, but what can you tell us in general terms about what someone in close proximity to a plant like this could expect to see, hear, smell, and potentially be inhaling? Sure, I'll uh, touch on some of the high points. Um, again, not specifics, but in general, I walked the site, looks like you could put a plant there uh, these gas turbine powered plants are fairly dense. I, I believe that you could probably put a facility there approximately uh, half the size of half a football field or so, more or less. That's about the size you're talking about. It would probably have a metal building uh, anywhere from uh, 40 to 70 feet tall. You know, we're not talking anything that would look like the Dragon Cement plant. They're usually lower. And as a matter of fact, that site is somewhat hilly and they might purposely put it lower because then the noise might travel uh, less. If you put it up higher uh, on the plateau there by the public works, noise probably goes further. Uh, the developer will have to do noise studies. 
they come in usually and they'll take ambient background noise and uh, they, they have to beat the local or state oil, uh, noise ordinance, whatever is applicable. And uh, if they can't meet it, they, they won't develop the project because then they'll just run into a brick wall. Uh, there is the opportunity to negotiation on the power, uh, the, not the power, but the land sales agreement that the, the city could always put covenants in uh, as additional terms on the, on the sale of the property. Um, what happens in power projects like this sometimes is with the nearest neighbors, and there are some houses there, uh, sometimes there's a financial offer made, sometimes there's a, uh, they call it a good neighbor payment, where they make a payment and say, we can spend a, a million dollars making the noise compliant, or we can not do that, and it's a little noisier by your house, and you get some of the money. I mean, these things happen, and it's not eminent domain, these negotiations happen. Uh, There'll probably be some tanks on the project site, uh, 30 to 40 feet in diameter, 20 to 30 feet high. Uh, they typically have water, fuel oil, a smaller tank with some ammonia, uh, ammonia solution for the pollution control equipment. Um, another thing I want to mention is, uh, you know, with the position this town's in, that you could probably work to make the project a little bit more architecturally pleasing. Uh, again, it's just usually like an industrial building, but the town would probably be in a position to talk to uh, landscaping, uh, facades, and other things like that. Uh, as far as smell goes, um, and some of my colleagues probably have been around projects, I really can't say these projects have a smell that you would sense off the property. If something were going horribly wrong, you know, they do burn a lot of gas, but if anyone smells gas, the fire department shows up right away. The plant's not gonna want that. Usually, I would equate the smell like uh, maybe to uh, uh, a shop in a uh, car dealership, that if you're in the garage, you must smell oil and some other industrial projects. But once you get outside the fence line on the property, you usually don't, don't smell anything. Uh, as far as impacts, the most immediate impacts for the neighbors are the visual impact and the, uh, and the noise. Uh, Visual, I should mention too, that usually there's a smokestack. Uh, you don't see any smoke coming out, uh, very clean burning. Uh, think of these engines as a jet engine on the back of the plane. That's how they act. That's generally the same technology, but there would be a smokestack 100 to 150 feet tall. When the studies are usually done, the developer and his environmental consultant come up and put up balloons to that height, and they go around town and take pictures to give people a sense of you know, what it might look like from different venues, and now they can even superimpose, pick, uh, you know, designs into the background shots so people would get a chance to see what it looks like. Um, noise is an issue. The one thing I can say on noise, again, is the engineers, the developer will design to whatever the code is, and they will meet it or they will not develop the project. If the town wants something better than that, uh, it's negotiable with the, with the, the land purchase. Uh, there might be some light pollution, but again, it, that's something uh, you, could, you could work that into the agreement. Uh, at night, there's usually only two people, three people on the project working indoors. Uh, most of the activity are indoors, so there's probably minimal light pollution. Uh, Stormwater and wastewater discharge, those are heavily regulated by the federal and state government. I really wouldn't call that a local impact to the neighborhood. It would be the sewage treatment plant. Uh, and some stormwater management like you might have at a, a Walmart or other place with a parking lot. This you have to treat the water before it, it goes into the, uh, to the local watershed. One thing I would mention is 
these industrial cogeneration projects usually have something called a cooling tower, which provides the heat sink uh, to condense the steam back to condensate to use it through the cycle. And, and those can have an impact. That's beside the noise, that's what I would concentrate on. In the winter time, in the right atmospheric conditions, they can almost give off the fog in the area. And if they're not well maintained, you could have some drifts, some, uh, some salt and evaporation that would carry over. Uh, one way to get around that, there's alternate technologies, something called an air-cooled condenser. It's more expensive, it's not as efficient, but you folks would be in a position to maybe build that into the sales agreement to even uh, further reduce the environmental impact or the, the local impact of the plant. You're listening to a forum on Rockland's energy future. It was organized by Renew Rockland. I'm your host, Amy Brown, and I also served as a moderator at the forum. All right, we have several more questions in this category. I'm just going to ask one and leave the others because I imagine people who live in the area will have more later on as it goes to the public comment period, and we want to move on to the um, more specifics about natural gas. But in terms of uh, health and environmental impacts and addressing this to uh, Dr. Mulkey or uh, Norm Anderson, what can be expected from a plant like this and what measures should people be taking to uh, ensure that to minimize or avoid health impacts? Either one of you would like to jump in on that. <laughs> um, can I ask, are you asking for the air emissions or are you asking for natural gas? I'm asking in general, from your experience. The, the best place to start on that is with fracked gas. I think. So why don't you take a crack at it? Can you all hear him back there? <laughs> I'm happy to start too. So. Norm Anderson from Physicians with Social Responsibility. Sorry, what's... Would you repeat that answer, please? Yeah, I don't think they could hear you, Dr. Mulkey. Um, I think the, the, the best, best way, place to start is you have to look at the entire production pipeline, which begins at the wellhead in the drilling process and goes all the way to your community and the health impacts that would occur in your community from erection of the plant and operation of the plant. Um, I think we just heard that, that most of the immediate uh, impacts could be mitigated if we're willing to put them as covenants into the sales agreement and the company's willing to pay for that mitigation. Um, so I actually think that leaves leaves much more discussion about the frackings. And we will get into that. Can I bring Did up? You, oh, no, sorry. Did you have anything that you wanted to add, Norm Anderson? Um, yeah, if, you, if, if this is the time to talk about the um, you know, as Dr. Mulkey was saying. Get into fracking. Okay, let's leave that for the fracking discussion. Yes, this, uh, it's really interesting on the uh, on the emissions. It's all relative. We talked about this during uh, the site plan. I mean, natural gas, we, got, we are going to be putting out tons. Uh, the, the project is going to be putting out tons of pollutants. Uh, but it is interesting. Uh, you have to put it in context, I think, sometimes, that what this power plant will be putting out in the local area next to Route 1 one could, you know, point to Route 1 as probably putting uh, a lot more of a local impact than this power plant has, because Route 1 is particulates from uh, burning oil, where the natural gas burns very cleanly. And the other thing I forgot to mention, and even in the noise as a context, I've done power projects like this, and people don't even notice them during the day because of Route 1 traffic, for instance. But when they go to sleep at night and Route 1 traffic comes to a trickle, all of a sudden they can hear the power plant. And that's what happens with a lot of wind projects here in really remote areas and really quiet at night. So it's a lot of that local gauge is somewhat relative. Yeah, I could, you know, one of the things to say about this is that uh, 
natural gas itself is vented directly to the atmosphere. Uh, it is 30 times more powerful than CO2 as a greenhouse gas, and certainly the warming of the atmosphere has uh, health impacts uh, to us now and to future generations. Uh, the 30 times more powerful is the global warming potential over a 100-year time frame. Uh, but it's definitely much more powerful than CO2. The good news is that if you're burning natural gas, you're, uh, you cut your emissions of uh, CO2 by what, about uh, 60%, 40 to 60%, mm -hmm. depending on, on how the plant is operated. And there's no reason that there should be particulate emissions to any significant degree, so the, the burden on the atmosphere is uh, definitely better than a coal-fired power plant by a long shot. It's better than biomass by a long shot, and it's easier to manage than is biomass. Just a, a, well, that leads into that. We, we're well, going to have to move on to the to the next set of questions, and they are directed to the two of you. Well, so you will well, get to jump in on this because it's related to this. So let yeah. me just ask the question, okay? Um, <laughs> natural gas has for years now, and this is directed to you, uh, Norm Anderson, and to Dr. Mulkey. Uh, natural gas has for years now been touted as a clean fuel and a bridge to renewables, but with what is now known about the impacts, the greater impact of uh, methane on the environment over a 100-year period as opposed to and compared to CO2. Do you feel that it being uh, called a bridge fuel is still fair? So I think that anticipated where you were going to go with that, Norm Anderson. Well, uh, in part, but I, I just wanted to finish up that, con that con conversation. Uh, I think a lot of our understanding or our concerns about the potential emissions from the from the plant uh, are really based on our understanding of the fuel source itself. And the, uh, there are differences between the conventionally fracked gas and the horizontal fracked gas. It's a much different operation. It delves much deeper into the ground. Um, and there are substances in that uh, gas stream, uh, including radioactive compounds, uh, solvents, uh, higher chained uh, hydrocarbons and methane uh, that, that have been shown to, to at least provide a presumption of, of health concern. Uh, we're seeing this in, in, uh, in studies of compressor stations uh, where we don't really know uh, from a day-to-day -day basis whether the gas is coming from a conventionally fracked well or a, a, a hydraulically horizontally fracked well. So there's that one caveat in terms of the emissions from the plant itself. I think there's more understanding we need of the characteristics of the gas. Uh, in terms of a bridge fuel, uh, when I was at the Lung Association from, from the 90s through the mid-2000s, uh, uh, it was uh, natural gas was touted as a, as a bridge fuel. And um, since that time, the uh, the use of natural gas is, is skyrocketed, as we as we all know, and it's hard to see, uh, or it's hard to have seen back then, uh, looking retrospectively, how this could have been, uh, what what the exit strategy is, it would, as it were, for for a bridge fuel. Um, just just to give an ex give you an example, uh, the hydro the uh, horizontal fracking operation that I mentioned, where if you look at a uh, at a vertical, the conventional fracking is to drill down maybe a few hundred feet, probably not too different from uh, the uh, depth that a uh, drilled well, a water well goes. 
But when you look at a uh, horizontally fracked well, uh, you've got to imagine uh, somewhere between four or five Empire State Building heights drilled deep down into the, into the ground, one to two miles. And you also have to imagine that same length going horizontally. That's why they call it horizontal fracking. So it's very different in terms of the uh, water that's used, uh, several, million dollars, seven, several million gallons per well, the chemicals that are used in that uh, operation, as well as the radioactivity that can come up from the, uh, from the fracking operation itself. So uh, I think if we, you know, that was then, this is now. If we are looking at a, at a bridge fuel, I think there really does need to be a clear plan of exactly is this going to be a, a bridge fuel. And I think uh, as we, uh, as other members of the panel, uh, can ascribe to, there are certainly major uh, areas around energy efficiency, around renewable uh, alternative energy growth outside of biomass, for example, uh, that probably should be explored in, in some sort of deliberative way before a, uh, a decision to further this uh, dependence on uh, fossil fuel uh, is, um, is, is approved. I just want to say from a health standpoint, methane is not really our major concern, outside of the fact, as Dr. Mulkey and others have said, it's a very potent greenhouse gas. In a, in a 20 year period, maybe 100 times more potent than, than, uh, than, than CO2. And uh, there are certainly health concerns that we are seeing uh, both in Maine and throughout the world uh, that are a consequence of, uh, of man-made greenhouse gas emissions. So methane in that regard is a very serious concern, especially given the fact that we don't have much of a carbon budget, if any, left to make these uh, very rapid changes. Uh, but there are some, some very real local impacts that occur in, uh, in these fracked wells in terms of, of acute effects, in terms of just studying, or starting to, to get a handle on the longer term health impacts. Uh, for example, low birth weight, preterm births, and uh, some emerging work around developmental uh, disabilities and perhaps cancer. Okay, I, I think we hopefully we'll have time to touch a little bit more on fracking. Uh, Dr. Mulkey, did you want to weigh in on the whole bridge renewables? Yeah, I think um, uh, there's a number of peer-reviewed papers out there that, that address this concern and the idea of it being a bridge from a totally fossil fuel-based driven base load to one which is largely um, renewables. Um, there's no question that we can go there. Um, I think the, the data are very compelling that we could be largely powering the world from wind, water, and solar if we really went after it. Uh, the major, major impediments are social and political, not economic or technical. Uh, that being the case, uh, what is the role that natural gas should play? I take my lead from the Union of Concerned Scientists to have issued a public statement that basically is highly cautionary. It says, if you're going to use natural gas, build it to the minimum scale that you need in order to fill in the extra base load that you're going to need for no more than about 20 years. And beyond that, you should have an exit strategy, as Norm just mentioned, of moving uh, toward a portfolio that's diversified across renewables. And uh, I think I think that especially applies to Maine. Um, so I'll stop there. Okay, thank you. Um, 
And the next one is directed to Jim Tolan or Norm Anderson. Given that pipelines and compressors both are known to leak methane, what is, can, should be done to uh, avert the impacts of that? <laughs> yeah. You want to take that? Um, well, that's a good issue. There are, probably will be compressor stations. Uh, they'll be along the pipeline, but I think it's conceivable that from the main pipeline to uh, to Rockland, you might not have any. Uh, when you get to the plant here, there'd be a compressor station. There can be some fugitive emissions. Uh, I would say it won't happen, uh, but it's. I have not seen it to be a, a, a huge concern. Uh, you know, the natural gas is odorized again. Fire departments show up. Plant operators are usually incentivized, uh, especially in an area like this, that they would be on top of it. That's probably a concern when you're going through the tundra and there's no people around to call the fire department and then the operators of the plant aren't as diligent. Uh, having said that, I don't want to minimize, I mean, the plants I've built and this one probably will have gas at seven, 800 pounds pressure, uh, you know, three or four inch pipe going into a jet engine. That possibility always exists for something to go wrong. Uh, the nice thing about uh, a power plant like this, though, is you can just close the valve and the fuel's gone. It's not like uh, some other power plants that have massive amounts of fuel right in the power plant that they might burn for days. Uh, accidents happen, but I, I think uh, the track record's pretty good that the incident rate of a plant like this is extremely low. And Dr. Mulkey, did you want to? Uh, so you, you were on the... Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that basically. Actually, no. Uh, uh, Norm Anderson. Norm, 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 just one more comment to sort of reiterate what I said earlier: that uh, methane is a concern, but there are potential risks from uh, non-methane hydrocarbons that are not or may not be regulated through these uh, pipeline regulations. Uh, that could be a health concerns at compressor stations through. Uh, normal uh, activities that compressor stations go through to uh, purge the uh, gas lines to uh, rid themselves of, of the uh, unwanted uh, compounds uh, from a uh, gas production standpoint or a ga gas uh, combustion standpoint. And those will remain concerns regardless of how much methane is controlled. Do we have time, Nate, for one more in this category? Okay. Uh, fracking, we've been uh, touching on fracking a little bit. It's uh, made natural gas more abundant. It's also associated with water pollution, earthquakes, among other things. Uh, someone at uh, one of the recent forums on this issue said, we all use fracked gas anyway, so we might as well just build this power plant. Others have expressed concerns about uh, building a plant that is associated with fracking. So in your opinion, and this is uh, this was to be addressed to Norm Anderson and Steve Mulkey, but anybody else wants to jump into briefly, why should or shouldn't people in Rockland be concerned about people who live where the fracking is taking place? Well, it's a, uh, this is the, the question that you have to ask the person in the mirror. Uh, I don't believe that there's a scientific answer to that question. It's a question of human values. There is the, the uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility just issued a new report. I'm familiar with it. It's actually a different group. It's a different group. Okay, well, uh, it's a different group, but it's, 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 it's a similar uh, group. And they, uh, their report says unequivocally that there is no safe way to frack. 
Now that said, uh, there are peer-reviewed papers, a couple of them I just read in the, the proceedings of the U.S. National Academy, that say that if due diligence is exercised, certain aspects of the fracking hazard at the wells can be mitigated to less than 10% and even less than 5%. Uh, this will require the operators, the drillers, to not drill in the proximity of human water supply. But what's not being considered there are many, many other things associated with fracking. This report from Fish Physicians with, for Social Responsibility is quite uh, comprehensive, and it goes over all of those other hazards, and their conclusion is that it cannot be done safely. So I, I think whether or not you're going to support using fracked gas is a question of your personal values and your, your ethical judgment. It's uh, the science, you know, you can, you can say that we, we do all kinds of things that indirectly harms other people. Uh, is this one of those things that you're willing to do? I believe the group was, and I'm not sure I got the term right, but it's physicians, scientists, and engineers for a healthy environment. I think they're they're located in New York State. Okay. Um, there is a PSR um, out of New York. I think oh, this is the PSR out of New York. Yeah. Maybe I missed that. And they're they're the ones who recommended that New York uh, ban it. You're listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. What you're hearing today is a forum that was held at the UU Church in Rockland on October 29th, organized by Renew Rockland. I served as the moderator. Unanswered questions from previous meetings about the proposal to build a gas plant in the city were compiled by Renew Rockland. The panelists were Norm Anderson, an environmental health scientist and volunteer member of Maine Physicians for Social Responsibility on their Climate Change Committee, Dr. Stephen Mulkey, a climate change scientist and president of Unity College, Jim Tolan, senior principal engineer at Bath Ironworks and energy consultant with extensive experience working on projects like this, Larry Pritchett, Rockland City Councilor and chair of the City of Rockland's Energy Committee, and Michael Mayhew, an Energy Engineering Performance Renewable Energy Systems Design and Installation Specialist. City so, Councilor Larry Pritchett. I just want to concur with, with, with the doctor that at a point, this particular question is more of a value question than a, than a scientific question. And ironically, I was at a River Network meeting in, in Albuquerque when this vote was taking place, when I wasn't here to vote. And one of, one of my colleagues said, you know, there are these value judgments with all forms of, of fossil fuels. You know, if for, for a long time, the U.S. was increasingly reliant on crude oil coming from places like the Niger River Delta. You know, it's a real value judgment. Do you want to be burning gasoline or kerosene or diesel fuel, extracting under the conditions of the Niger River Delta compared to, you know, the conditions for fracked oil out of South Dakota? I mean, I... You know, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm just saying it's a real tough value decision to make. I think, I think another way to look at this, though, beyond uh, strictly a value judgment, uh, is that I think one of the reasons why we're having this uh, opportunity is, is because natural gas is being looked at as a cheap uh, fuel. And if the, uh, there have been a number of, of um, of uh, specifications that have been laid down, even by the health minister of New Brunswick. I think there was some that came out of the United Kingdom shortly. 
And a question would be, if those safeguards were put into place, what would that do to the price of natural gas? Would it be competitive? Um, if there is a closely tracked monitoring system to identify uh, pollutant episodes, to do health tracking, uh, to do all these things that public health uh, does on a, or should do on a normal uh, routine, uh, this would probably increase the price of, of gas, of uh, natural gas. And similar, uh, as we're sort of rectifying the externalities issue with the, um, the clean power plan and putting a price on carbon uh, to uh, address the uh, impacts, both on the direct impacts of air pollution, but also the longer term impacts of climate change. It could change the economics of the situation considerably. Yeah. I just yes, want to, uh, to follow up on that. Um, I'm going to get the citation on, I think it was the transportation minister for Norway was talking about their electric car program. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the points she made was that if you want a cleaner, more renewable product to be heavily, to have heavy market penetration, you, you have to make the clean product the most cost-effective product. You know, that there's a certain premium a part of the community will pay for organic produce or solar power over the market value, but that's a limited percentage of the market. You know, the way Norway was looking to get electric cars into a higher market was look at all the places in terms of parking, uh, travel lanes, a whole pile of places where the government could tweak the standard a little bit to make the electric car more competitive. And certainly, you know, Norm and I both for years, we've been trying to, from environmental regulation, make the price of the fossil fuel closer to the real price. And the more we enforce water quality standards, air quality standards on every step of the production line, the more the price of natural gas or diesel fuel more reflects the true cost. And the more cost competitive solar or wind becomes. Okay, thank you. And we're gonna shift gears now to renewables. As we mentioned, and if anybody's just joined us late, uh, Anna Demio, who is going to be here from College of the Atlantic, who's a specialist in um, community solar projects and those types of things, was unable to be here. And at the last minute, we're very grateful that Michael Mayhew was able to jump in instead. And he is taking on her questions with about five minutes notice. So uh, we appreciate that as well. And this next question, in case you think we forgot about you down at that end of the table, we didn't. Uh, how does it? How does the cost to develop a cogen plant compare to the cost to convert to renewables? And uh, what role would publicly funded uh, subsidies play in those costs? Okay. Just a uh, tiny little question. Um, yeah. Um, I before I answer that, I, I think that uh, a lot of this is is we're talking about a 75 megawatt plant that may go here, and do you need it? And what is the most cost-effective way to power whatever your end uses are, and are your end uses the most efficient they could be? And uh, it, rather than increase load to meet everybody that wants to add a new refrigerator or a, a new stove, or maybe they have a potential to heat, and then they have to cool where you have heat pump. There's all kinds of efficiencies out there. Um, and the city's full of them. I, I've done studies for your school department. I did a uh, 
study for your, your sewage treatment plant. You're dumping all this hot water, half a million gallons a day is coming from, from uh, FMC that has to be cooled down low enough so the city will take it in the sewage treatment plant so it doesn't screw up the, the process. Um, there's all kinds of energy out there in just to say, well, let's put a combined heat and power plant here. Is that the way to go? Um, usually when you're doing renewable energy projects and they are cost effective and, and unfortunately we're up against a barrier. The, we have a 30% federal tax credit that expires December 31st of next year. And uh, if no legislation is passed, although it is one of the fastest growing areas in the country for jobs and, and maybe there would be some movement and maybe it would be continued. The industry is hoping the uh, federal tax credit is reduced to 20%. If nothing is done, the commercial uh, uh, incentive will be 10%. Residential will be zero of the federal tax credit. So um, right now with the 30% federal tax credit, uh, businesses are, are seeing uh, seven to ten year type of paybacks. The bigger your project is, the cheaper it is. So, uh, you know, potentially a community project could be uh, certainly uh, well under three dollars, maybe two dollars a watt installed. Um, and uh, so, you know, if you wanted uh, the 75 megawatt is a peaking load. Um, does that need 24 hours a day? No, it doesn't. It wants to follow the, the, the load that you, when you guys are sleeping at 2 in the morning, the only thing that might be on your refrigerator might cycle on or your, your boiler or something. But there's very, very little load. And so how much you would actually need, you don't put in 75 megawatts. You probably have to put in uh, closer to 200 megawatts to make up for 75 if it's loaded, but it determines on the operation uh, 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 how much it operates, the, uh, the factor. So there's some studying, but while you're doing that, why not create all kinds of wonderful jobs in the community doing energy conservation? You've got tidal out here that uh, very slow moving turbines. We've got tides stronger than almost anywhere in the country. Um, this, this all, you know, uh, like I mentioned before, you know, we save the need for upgrading the transmission lines in Ruth Bay Harbor by 14 years. We believe we put off uh, uh, with our little experiment with giving away free LED bulbs to every commercial business that operated during the daytime because we're a summer community that uh, uses 10 times the load in the summer that you do in the winter. A lot of it's driven by the AC, uh, and lights drive the AC up. You know, you put a uh, light source that uses a tenth of the energy or 15% of the energy, and it's very high quality. Um, all of a sudden, you don't have an AC load anymore, or your little tiny AC unit works, and it never did. So there's, there's all kinds of advantages of not adding a big power plant because if a big power plant energy is too cheap to meter, you know, the, the planet heats up, the ocean side beaches the road, you know, we, uh, the, the cost of the externalities is, is going to be phenomenal. And that is not factored in, I'm sure, in the price of your 75 megawatt plant. 
You're yeah. next up, Jim Tolley. I was just going to add on to that. These issues are really complex with the fracking. This, this two data points. I was fortunate uh, last year I did a 300 megawatt wind project in Texas. It was huge. And the price of power we were producing was cheaper than what you could produce with natural gas. I mean, that's the threshold they've gotten there. And the price of natural gas has come down by over 50, 60 percent in the last couple of years for fracking. So in certain areas of the country, and even here, if you take the fracking away, the renewable energy gets that much better. On the tidal energy, that, that's interesting too. The state has done a lot of studies. And if you take the top 10 spots in the state for tidal energy, it was said to be 20 megawatts, which would only be one third the capacity of this plant, right? So this is for context, but on top of that, this having been involved with developing plants, if you got to do tidal energy, it's got to be, where's it got to be? It's got to be in front of or near people's houses that are the most expensive houses on the coast. You have all the different constituencies. You got to have the fishermen, the lobstermen, everything else. Highly complex issues. When you get into uh, electricity and power, uh, my, my point is everything is just, it's very complex decisions. Can I say one quick point? What I wanted to say was that the Energy Committee has often said, and I've said it as chair, that often the cheapest energy and, and the most renewable energy is the energy you don't buy. You know, it's deep energy retrofits in your buildings. It's being sure your heating and cooling system is, is functioning properly. The question, which uh, has been alluded to here, is how you generate that remaining power. And I think setting aside question, that's something from her, from all of us here, the, the natural gas power plant, if it's used at all, should be sized to the smallest demand needed. Yeah. You know, and that really becomes a question of how do you determine what that is? You know, is there one here? You know, if it, and is it you know, five megawatts, at which point you all unquestionably go do something else? Or is it still a critical number? And I don't, that's a number I'd like to know. But that's, that really comes down to the answer for natural gas in the next 45 years is what's that remaining piece that until we have offline storage or a better balance of renewables that you still need that power to stabilize the grid. That's all we have time for today, but we will bring you more of the forum on Rockland's energy future with more questions about the proposed gas plant as well as fracking, climate change, alternative energy, and that 25-mile-long gas pipeline next Wednesday at 4 here on Maine Currents. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Thanks for listening, and join us every Wednesday at 4 for independent local news, views, and culture here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Now! is coming up next, and jazz straight ahead, and a night of great music here on your community radio station.